Hi. The uh, predicted winter crisis of the NHS, um, every winter, of course, the NHS um, falls apart as all of the respiratory disease uh, admissions start to take over the wards and uh, old folk who maybe manage through the summer um, face with a hard winter and not getting out so much and uh, contracting chest infections constantly and being in and out, often from the care homes. I remember some of the old folk that I know when they were in care homes would uh, frequently be given antibiotics by the visiting doctor and then end up in, in hospital, sometimes in intravenous antibiotics because of the uh, the winter um, causing far more problems um, for folk that are compromised in their health anyway and then less mobile and then faced with a whole lot of new respiratory viruses. So the winter flu season always causes a crisis in NHS and of course with Covid it's, uh, it's 10 times worse. So that dominates the news today. Now I went through the university system and as a consequence I, I know a lot of people who were either training to be doctors um, or who, when I became a teacher, um, went on to become nurses uh, and sometimes doctors because I taught them things like access to nursing courses and so on. So I know a fair number of people who um, either worked as uh, doctors or nurses or still do. Um, and in one case, I know a, a chap who was a, a senior manager in the NHS in two different hospitals and is now a kind of floating consultant. I've also got a friend who's a purchasing manager in the NHS. So because of my background, I know a fair number of people and uh, it's often said that the British don't have a religion um, in the way that other countries do. Uh, they have the NHS, which is our national religion. It's the, the great sacred cow. It can't be questioned. What's interesting is, of course, the people that do question it are the people who work there. They're far less reticent uh, to be questioning. So if you listen to the, the, the journalists and uh, your average Vox man in the street and um, they've got little to say in criticism of the NHS that's not true for the people who actually work in it um, if you listen to a hospital manager talking about the the NHS they'll say really acid things like um, the cheapest people I employ are the consultants and the specialist nurses have done additional training but a lot of the ordinary grade nurses who aren't ambitious and don't want to get on and won't do any extra work um, are a complete waste of rations and money now that's the sort of thing a hospital manager will say when they're frustrated. It's the sort of thing that cannot be said um, by anybody in the media. It can't be said, but it won't be said by the average person in the street. So the idea that loads of nurses work without much um, haste or enthusiasm can be. Other nurses can say that. I know two nurses who will say that quite happily about some of their colleagues. Uh, they'll complain bitterly about the attitude of folk who will stand and talk the whole way through a ward briefing without listening to what's been said and the weakness of the supervisory staff who will allow that to happen rather than challenge it. Um, the, uh, the nurses are highly critical of other nurses and they'll tell the truth about uh, the reality of behaviour based on the rules. Um, so the, uh, if, if a nurse has got family responsibilities and is a single parent, there is absolutely no incentive to continue working full time given the way the welfare state works. So a big issue in nursing is the fact that huge numbers of nurses don't work full-time because they don't have to. And uh, the doctors will admit, um, and I remember 
was speaking to loads of medical students back in the 19, late 80s and early 90s, the doctors would admit that it was the success of the initiatives to get more women into medical school that caused, and, and it was predicted would cause, the shortage of doctors um, later on because they knew that uh, women were much more likely to work part-time or take career breaks and nothing was done to address that if something could have been done but nothing was done it was simply accepted and I, rem I remember the discussions taking place between some of the lecturers or certainly one lecturer in particular uh, a chap from New Zealand um, I remember him talking to the medical students and uh, and listening in uh, and they were all talking about what was going to be this uh, big reduction in general practice in the future because of the, uh, the, the change in demographic and the intake and, uh, and what would happen inevitably if nothing else changed. So the, 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 the British have a very um, benign view of the NHS, but the people that work in it have got a very different view. I remember speaking to a pal back in 1990 who had just started working in the wards in Glasgow. And he was a wee bit shaken, I think. We were standing outside the what was then the Rubaiyat pub in Byers Road. And he'd started working in the Western Infirmary. And he said, people don't realise that if you have a stroke and you don't come round and start responding in five days, they stop your antibiotics and give you pneumonia and you die. He says, it's absolutely routine. And he hadn't known that until he started working in the hospital. And he seemed a wee bit shaken. And I was a wee bit shaken as well. I don't know if that still happens, but according to him, it was happening in 1990. And uh, as I say, if you tell people that, uh, they, they seem a bit uh, surprised. But the, uh, there really isn't any reason to be surprised, because uh, the old saying that, that doctors uh, bury their mistakes, that kind of dark humour, um, that, uh, that, of course, you know, if anyone that knows anything at all about canteen cultures, anyone knows anything at all about the tendency for people in the same profession to try and cover for each other, would strongly suspect that that would have to happen in, a, in an environment like a, a hospital. The, uh, the, the necessity to get on, I mean, if, if, you, if you were reasonably um, intelligent, rational, thoughtful, and you didn't, know anything, you didn't know anything at all about what would happen in the police service, um, would you be able to anticipate, would you be able to predict what would happen um, if, for example, someone asked you whether you thought that if you hit a police officer, you'd get hit back at some point. Because I, I asked a friend as a police officer, and that, so that was always the exact words. Even before I joined the cops, I knew that if you hit a police officer, you're going to get hit back at some point. And you would think that would happen. If the cops are continually dealing with people who are violent, and if the courts don't treat assault on police as an additional charge in any meaningful sense, in other words, they give concurrent sentences, so the person serves this exactly the same amount of time. They get the sentence for the robbery or the theft or the burglary, and then they get three months for assault on police to be served concurrently with no additional sentence, no additional time. What do you think will happen? How do you think police officers will change their behaviour? So if you'd any, if you'd any normal, ordinary common sense, and and you looked at the consequences for doctors and nurses if things go wrong, and all of them knowing each other's mistakes and uh, all of them therefore in a position to, to land each other in a lot of trouble. If you had to work out what was likely to happen um, in that environment, given the, the eternal verities of, of human nature, what do you think would happen? So as I say, the, the British have got a view of the NHS, and uh, it isn't shared, I think, in large part, 
by the people who work in the NHS, particularly if you speak to them privately as friends uh, and they tell you the truth. And uh, certainly my family experience, not just very recently, but over the last few years, my family's experience of the, of the NHS has been, uh, has been patchy, variable. So I had to watch my uncle um, being killed, basically, by the Liverpool Care Pathway, which was supposed to have been banned. So they weren't giving him fluids, um, and he, he lasted a long time. And uh, they, uh, they then essentially uh, killed him with a, a massive overdose of diamorphine. So the, uh, his wife had left. They gave him this injection and then said, oh, it won't be long now, you better get her back. And I said, yeah, well, it won't be long now because you've just given him a massive dose of diamorphine that suppressed his breathing. Um, and it didn't actually kill him for a number of hours. So I watched that and I thought, uh, and this, of course, leads on to something else, which is happening at the moment, the assisted dying bill. But I watched that and I thought, there's a lot happening here that if somebody puts some pressure on it, you couldn't defend. Like, for example, the use of the Liverpool Care Pathway, which had been banned uh, Liverpool Care Pathway, which is, is another name for um, uh, killing you with dehydration. The um, my, I've got a friend who's a dentist, and his mother was in hospital, and he walked in and had a look at the chart at the bottom of the, the bed, and asked the senior house officer a few questions, who panicked and ran away and got the registrar. He asked him a few questions, he panicked and ran away and got the consultant. My pal asked him a few questions, and all of the care changed. Because all it took was a dentist who understood a bit of biochemistry to put some pressure on this. And all of a sudden, um, people were looking closely at what they'd done and uh, facing the kind of questions which they should have asked themselves when they were deciding what to do. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the treatment was getting changed. So, as I say, um, I've not been impressed um, on many occasions by the NHS. When my mother falls and breaks her leg, um, I don't expect people to give her an x-ray and then tell her there's nothing wrong and insist that she walk on it. And as she, as she continually says that she can and falls over, eventually they agree to send her to another hospital where, of course, the, the, the massive break uh, in, at the top of her thigh is identified and she has to get metal plates to fix her leg. Trying to make somebody walk on a broken leg um, is not clever. And, uh, and that was what happened. If my cousin gets an infection, I guess taken in the hospital uh, in order to be given antibiotics under supervision because it's tracking up her arm and they have to be given every few hours. You don't really expect them to not be given at all at six o'clock at night, which is what happened. If you go into hospitals to visit your old pal who's had uh, multiple strokes and you continually tell him that he can't hear um, and you have to put your mouth an inch away from his left ear and they never ever take that on board and they never ever um, ask him anything um, such that he can actually hear what's been said and, and give a, a response, then that becomes a bit wearing. And uh, as I say, it goes back a long time in my experience, back into the 1970s. I remember being shocked coming back into the, the house and seeing my grandmother with her face black and blue. I thought she'd been beaten up. And it was because she made the mistake of asking that something be done about a little indentation on the edge of her nose that I hadn't even noticed and wouldn't have thought was significant. But they, uh, they gave her what they said was plastic surgery, which meant a, a chunk of flesh being taken off her hip and stuck onto the side of her nose, which looked terrible for the rest of her life, and she was very upset about it. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the massive bruising all over her face went away, but she was left with this big carbuncle sticking out the side of her nose. 
uh, a completely botched operation. Uh, I know people at the moment who have had detached retinas and uh, and uh, two intraocular lenses in the eye at the same time so that they, uh, they couldn't remove the first lens so they ended up inserting a second um, to give the person uh, vision but with the image of a, a second lens in the eye constantly hugely distracting and uh, as I say uh, the, the NHS is, has a, a status in the UK that very few organisations have got still it's hard to think of any other organisation the army, the police, all the major certainly the judiciary all the major social institutions have been compromised because of the the negative headlines that have been uh, you know seen by almost everybody very even if you don't take much interest in, in politics you have to have, for example seen the, the the reporting of the malicious prosecution um, of uh, the people involved in the Rangers administration or the uh, prosecution of Alex Salmond with so many charges which you would have thought at least one of them would have stuck and the suggestion by experienced lawyers that the reason why all those charges had been laid was precisely because one of them would stick. Um, when you see that and you see the jury acquit on every charge, uh, you begin to become concerned. So our major social institutions um, have been chipped away at, but the one that remains uh, to be venerated is the NHS. And as I say, I've never been entirely convinced that it deserves that kind of uh, attitude. And there are other things about the NHS that people seem curiously resistant to accept. For example, the very generous funding uh, it receives. Regardless of COVID, long before COVID, the idea that the NHS was seriously underfunded compared to other nations is false. It's about mid-table. And uh, the results often are not great. And the willingness to abandon things which make perfect rational sense, like, for example, the quality-adjusted life here. One of the things that people can't accept is that there's a thing called diminishing marginal utility, which is the tendency for improvement to decrease with extra spending. If you spend more money on something, things get better, but they don't get better at the same rate. So if you buy a car, most of the um, good things that happen when you spend additional money happen below 20,000. Above 20,000 cars get better, but they get better at a less impressive rate. And uh, that holds true for cancer treatment. The difference between a very economical cancer treatment and the very best cancer treatment um, is not so very great in terms of the prognosis. There's little extra you can buy for extra money. The drugs that came off patent in the 1990s are nearly as effective as the drugs that are on patent in 2022. It's just that they're vastly more expensive. Um, and if you uh, if you money is no object, you buy the drugs that are still in patent, which have just been invented, which can show in clinical trials marginal improvements. But whether that will have much impact on the quality of life for somebody who's seriously ill and has only got a little bit of time to, to live uh, is a separate question. So we've got a huge amount of diminishing marginal utility. And uh, with this COVID crisis, we've got a lot of people who will uh, now present with cancer that hasn't been treated in a year or more. Their prognosis often will be no better treated than untreated. And if you really try to minimise human misery, you would ignore a lot of the people um, who are presenting very late and tell them that the, 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 the prognosis is so bad it's not going to make any difference whether they're treated or not. And you would treat those who are presenting earlier. But these are the kind of hard-faced things. And they're not hard-faced, actually. They're just, in actual fact, the opposite of hard-faced. It's recognising that your feelings are less important than other people's lives and therefore trying to save as many lives as possible, regardless of whether it upsets you. 
because your primitive feelings about what would be the right thing to do are not a good guide to how to act in the world to make the world a better place. So this isn't a hard-faced attitude, actually. It just seems so because people think it's, it's generous and loving to follow your instincts, even when your instincts get lots of people killed. So, as I say, the, the NHS has been a hugely problematic um, institution for a long time and COVID has placed it under enormous pressure for reasons that people don't want to explore. And this leads me to a point about um, the, the COVID crisis. Uh, a friend of mine told me the other day that the hospital where he works is in complete uproar, not because of COVID patients, which is how the media are covering the story. COVID is not causing the problem. What's causing the problem is that nearly all the staff are testing positive and taking 10 days off, which is then causing massive ward restructurings and shift restructurings, which is, is causing complete chaos and massive stress and poor care for the, the patients who remain on the wards. And uh, when you say something obvious, like, for example, couldn't we actually take the staff who have tested positive and put them in for these pop-up hospitals, these uh, Louisa Jordan Nightingale hospitals? Could we put them in those hospitals and have them treat people who have tested positive themselves so that everybody on the site, if, if, if the nurses and doctors are not unwell and most of them don't seem to be, could they not actually spend the time before they test negative in a site where people are testing positive too so that they could actually get some useful work out of them and reduce the demand in the rest of the service? <clears throat> now, I have no idea whether that's workable or not, but it sounds workable. And it sounds like the kind of thing that could not work also. It might not work. And if it doesn't work, then there'll be negative headlines attached to the person who suggested it and tried. My uncle, who was killed by the Liverpool Care Pathway, was a senior manager in the post office. And he said something which always stuck with me when it came to large public sector organisations. He said, every year we do these reviews and all the junior managers and I always used to try and give people credit for trying something, even if it hadn't worked. Because in the post office, people rise, they melt upwards, they fail upwards, they are grey men. If you really have pals and nothing too bad is said against you, you'll, you'll head upwards. But nothing's done to actually make anything better, nothing's tried. So consequently, you get the rise of the grey men. You get a service that just isn't particularly good and gets worse year on year. Because things change in the world. Uh, the employment market changes. It becomes harder and harder to recruit postal workers because other alternative sources of employment are available. Um, competitor organisations in the parcel force um, grow up. You get competition from uh, DPD and others. And if you don't actually try things to work out what could work in your organisation, you'll slowly fade away. So you have to try things. You have to fail early, I think, as Elon Musk said. Fail hard and fail early. Because only by failing um, or risking failing do you find out what could work. Do you do something sufficiently bold to find out that it could work? And uh, the NHS, it seems to me, in particular during this COVID crisis, in particular, particularly um, when strongly controlled by politicians who are hugely dependent on the next headline uh, and terrified of being held responsible for the consequences of this COVID crisis, the NHS in those circumstances doesn't seem to be prepared to try anything novel. So we, we know that um, the, uh, the, the new treatments that are coming through are hugely effective in preventing serious illness. And as some people have suggested, what we need to have is a targeted protocol for people who are most vulnerable with comorbidities and older folk so that they can be treated aggressively and early if they do contract COVID 
with these new treatments that uh, are antivirals and, uh, and, and palliative or, or, or um, uh, care that doesn't actually stop you being infected in the way that a vaccine does, um, but dramatically reduces the risk of serious illness. And massive testing of the most vulnerable groups coupled with really aggressive treatment with antivirals early on would probably reduce more um, quality adjusted life years at vastly reduced cost. But it would involve trying something. It would involve actually saying, this is what we're going to do. You know, um, I think it was Roosevelt who said of the New Deal, we're going to try this. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And that kind of boldness, you can call it chutzpah if you like, that willingness to get on the front foot and try and seize the agenda and try and make a difference and say, this isn't acceptable. It doesn't work. We're going to try something new. That kind of leadership really isn't found in the NHS. And it isn't found in our politicians. And there's a reason why it isn't found in our politicians. And it's because we reward them for not demonstrating it. And why do we do that? Well, because the NHS is our national religion. It's our church. We won't hear a word said against it. The people who deposited the Colston um, statue in the harbour were acquitted by the jury. They were uh, on serious criminal damage charges, which is why it was a jury trial, because they could have been sentenced to a, a long period of imprisonment. It couldn't be dealt with by magistrates. Knowing what they now know, of course, the prosecutors next time will probably try to put people before magistrates who will convict rather than juries who might not. Now, they were acquitted and there are people, um, apparently sensible, thoughtful people, including politicians and journalists, who think this is acceptable, who think this is uh, a, an appropriate thing for them to have done and uh, a way of going on for others who might be in similar circumstances judging further acts of criminal damage and people like me on the centre right are amazed that anybody sensible could think that this was uh, appropriate. I would have liked him to be convicted and then for the judge to have done something uh, innovative with the, uh, with the punishment. A community payback order that involved them having to do a lot of work um, on similar statues, getting them fixed up, um, or alternatively, um, doing a lot of work um, producing uh, materials for teaching or uh, or something similar on the issue that uh, so animated them, with a requirement that they be even handed, and that the the materials include uh, the, uh, the 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 huge changes that have taken place in the law, the things that were thought natural at one moment in time, the justifications that were given for slavery in the seventeenth century. Uh, and the good that Coulson's money had done and all of that. So there are all kinds of things the judge could have done that would have uh, that would have signalled that this was a hugely contentious uh, area. But at the same time, you can't actually have people deciding they're going to damage property and get away with it. But the jury prevented that, perhaps because they feared that there would be serious punishment that would follow. And there have been cases like this in the past. Uh, I can never remember which of the two was, was convicted, but there was Sarah Tisdall and Clive Ponting. And uh, I think Tisdall was convicted and Ponting wasn't, but the, um, there were senior civil servants who leaked things about uh, the British state and uh, nuclear weapons and the Belgrano, I think, from memory. But they leaked things and were caught and had breached the Official Secrets Act. 
Now, when a judge puts a, a charge to a jury, what the judge tells them is that you're the fact finder. So your job is to find the facts. So what you have to consider is that the, the Crown say that Craig Ross stole the television and you've heard from the witnesses and you've heard from the police officers arrested him nearby and that you've heard them say that he was carrying the television when they arrested him. So I want you to consider whether you find uh, those witnesses and that police officer or those police officers credible and reliable. And if you do, then you can safely convict. Don't worry about the consequences. Uh, all of that is for me. The lawyers beforehand, the defence lawyers, um, have to contest the charge. And they might do that by saying that Craig taking the television from his ex-girlfriend's flat was not a theft. So even if you prove the facts that you choose to prove here, which is that he was arrested by constables nearby and witnesses saw him leaving the property with the television, um, it's not a theft because um, he paid her rent when she bought the television and they'd agreed there was a quid pro quo and she doesn't dispute that. So even taken at their highest um, as a point of law, these facts don't justify the charge because he didn't, he didn't steal it or whatever. So there are points of law and then there's questions of fact and then there's the consequences of the conviction for the person based on what the judge decides to do. And these are all separate rules. And of course the laws are passed by Parliament. So Parliament, elected by us, decides to set out what you can and can't do. So for example, um, if you own an air rifle in Scotland, you have to register it. I wasn't prepared to register my air rifle, so I sold it. What I couldn't do, of course, was simply keep the air rifle and then decide that I wasn't going to register it because we have to have a process. And I might despise the SNP government. Uh, I might despise uh, the, uh, the laws that they choose to pass. It's neither here nor there. Because if we each can decide um, which laws we obey, then we can forget all about the process of electing a parliament to pass the laws and we can forget all about having process to find out whether they've been uh, broken. So this was a hugely contentious case and a lot of people had sympathy for the folk who threw the statue in the, in the harbour. And what had happened, of course, was that there'd been a long discussion about what was to be done with Coulson's statue and an agreement, it seems, across the interested parties had been reached and they would put a plaque on the statue which would place it in context but they couldn't agree on the wording of the plaque so the thing was still up in the air, time was passing. The death of George Floyd, murdered by a moron, that police officer, Chauvin, absolute disgrace of a man and rightly in jail. The murder of him, um, three and a half thousand miles away, was held to be uh, an inspiration and a justification for destroying property in uh, the UK, in Bristol. Now, how on earth um, the appalling behaviour of a police officer in the United States can tell us anything at all about matters in the UK entirely unrelated, uh, I'll never know. But you can kind of see the mood music that causes that. And it's it's the same mood music that causes the, the family, uh, a wife and three children, of one of my friends, one of my pals, his wife is a teacher, and his three kids are basically um, all in their teens, I think. And uh, he asked them, they were all um, condemning the, the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, and he, he must have suspected there was something going on. He asked them whether, because uh, they they, I think they were talking about Black Lives Matter, 
And uh, he asked them whether they thought that the people that Rittenhouse had shot were black or white. And his wife was a teacher, and all three of his kids said that they were black. They knew so little about what had actually happened in the trial that they assumed that Rittenhouse had shot black folk. And uh, the, 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 the riots in the UK and the taking of a knee by footballers and many other things, they, including, for example, the fact that it's almost impossible to turn on Radio 4 without listening to another programme, yet another programme, about uh, the uh, supposed dreadfulness of, of Britain's actions. You never hear a programme about the West Africa squadron and the British stopping the slave trade and, uh, and the fact that it nearly bankrupted us after the enormous debts of the Napoleonic War. That's not really something you hear. You never hear about Locke's second treat as a government, because John Locke, the great political theorist who, whose work had provided inspiration for the American uh, colonist revolution, Locke had worked for a slaving company. And if you read Locke's second treatise, he, I think more, on more than one occasion, talks about slavery being uh, legitimate for those who were captured um, in an aggressive war, an unjust aggressive war. And, uh, of course, whether it was actually believed um, by those involved in the trade, I have my doubts. I suspect it was probably uh, a convenient fiction. But certainly the Old Testament doesn't condemn the institution of slavery, even though you and I find it completely loathsome. And uh, the belief uh, articulated by Locke that what was happening in Africa was aggressive wars being fought and those who were captured among the aggressors were being handed over as punishment because the alternative was that they would be subject to the death penalty for their aggressive wars. That was certainly the narrative that was, was told uh, by some of those involved in the trade, probably, as I say, completely dishonestly, but that was what they claimed. But the, the institution of slavery, the tremendous amount of evil um, in Africa that was taking place long before the Europeans arrived, arrived and the, the number of Europeans who were enslaved by the so-called Barbary pirates um, and, uh, and all of the evil that was done then, and the evil that continues today with uh, effect of slavery across large parts of the Middle East through indentured servants and the appalling treatment that Filipinos and others suffer at the hands of Arab families, uh, all of that is completely and utterly invisible to the people who would smash a statue and, and throw it in the harbour. Now, if, if we accept that an acquittal, not just light punishment, if we accept an acquittal is appropriate, what are the medium-term consequences of that across a whole range of other areas, like, for example, tax evasion or the assaults that might take place on particularly disagreeable criminals um, or the position of the police who stood by while criminal damage took place. Because if, if we stop and think about it, the, uh, the, the levying of taxes is often very controversial. Uh, and people think, for, uh, for example, you know, de facto poll taxes, like for television licenses and the like, that the levying of taxes is often very controversial. In Scotland in the 1980s, it caused um, first the rise of Tommy Sheridan and massive problems in, in, in the streets of Glasgow, and then the fall of the Thatcher government. Um, with Tommy Sheridan being elected to the Scottish Parliament, uh, having told people not to pay the poll tax, and then, of course, passing laws and voting on laws which he insisted that people obey. The Labour Party, to their credit, was consistent. The Labour Party said that uh, the poll tax was unjust, or rather inequitable, 
and that you should pay it but vote Labour and they would get rid of it. That makes a certain amount of sense. But to say that you can just choose which laws you obey, well, what are the medium-term consequences? I mean, if, if, if we think that paedophiles and uh, other particularly unattractive offenders aren't sufficiently punished, if, for example, you think uh, a footballer um, found liable in a civil court for damages for rape is therefore a rapist and can be attacked in the street, um, is that acceptable? If that's your judgment, if you think that, uh, that a footballer who paid 100000 in damages is therefore a rapist, as the, as the newspapers routinely refer to him, can you assault him in the street? Are you doing something wrong? Or is that a thing that you're entirely at liberty to make up your own mind about? Um, if you think that uh, the police officers stood by in Bristol and did nothing to prevent serious criminal damage, when of course their oath is to protect life and property, keep the peace and enforce the law without fear or favour, malice or ill will, if you think that, can you then take retribution um, on anybody you see committing a, an act of criminal damage, for example, on Churchill's statue or at uh, the Bomber Command uh, statue? I think it's at the National Arboretum. But if you see somebody uh, damaging, throwing paint on the, on the Bomber Command uh, statue, can you knock the living bejesus out of them and, and, and make it sufficiently serious so that it won't be tried by magistrates because of course if, if someone was going to do this if there was a soldier um near one of these statues and uh, he anticipated that uh, the uh, the jury might acquit him but he would have to make sure that sort of what he did was so serious it went beyond anything that could be dealt with by the magistrates court um, if the soldier then uh, seriously assaulted and seriously injured uh, such a person would he have been doing something right because he'd be, he would be ignoring the letter of the law and considering the popular mood and what he anticipated would be the view taken of a jury that felt itself entitled to not be the fact finder that the law required, felt itself entitled to ignore the judge's direction, felt itself entitled to ignore the democracy in the parliament and to do what it thought um, emotionally, viscerally, uh, sentimentally was right. Because the, the medium term consequences of this kind of behaviour uh, are very serious. All of the places in the world where you would want to live are places where people accept propriety, procedure, uh, the formality, the bureaucracy. The places where you don't want to live are the places where this kind of anarchy takes place. And uh, the road to hell is paved uh, with good intentions, famously. And these, the, the jurors probably intended something quite uh, attractive. But the reason why we have processes is because it takes thousands of years of slow and steady accretion of trial and error uh, in order to produce the good society, precisely because people can't invent one um, from a blank sheet of paper. We're just not that good. Human beings, as, as David Hume, as I always quote, as Hume says, justice is an artificial virtue, and the tendency towards a backsliding is so serious that you can't ever take a backward step. Or, as Kevin Costner said in JFK, I think, let justice be done though the heavens fall. Uh, quoting a Roman, I believe. But, uh, so, the Coulson statue um, was severely damaged. Thousands of pounds worth of criminal damage took place straight in front of police officers who did nothing about it. And a jury then acquitted them of these charges. And people who are elected to Parliament and in positions of power and influence are lauding the jury for doing that. This is all very dangerous. <laughs>
woke up this morning to find Glasgow carpeted in snow. Uh, thank God there's heavy rain predicted for tomorrow and that will hopefully wash it all away. As usual, um, the, uh, the newspapers and social media are full of angry drivers complaining bitterly about ungritted roads. And uh, we've got the usual scenes of buses sliding backwards down hills and impacting on cars. And uh, soon, of course, we'll have the uh, unexpected rise in uh, orthopedic, uh, on demand in orthopedic services. I always remember the, uh, I think it was Shona Robinson, but I can't be certain, but the SNP's health minister at the time was talking about the, uh, the, the amount of money being spent on the NHS. And she said there had been uh, un un unprecedented demand <laughs> on orthopedic services. I shouldn't laugh. Um, people had been falling on the uncredited pavements and broken bones, and now, of course, there was uh, huge amounts of uh, you know extra expense on on plaster casts and uh, and surgeons pinning uh, broken shoulder blades and uh, and hips. I fell back in twenty eleven. I fell really heavily. If I'd been an older person, if I'd been my age now. Uh, I'd have probably been in the hospital uh, on a sheet of ice. Uh, I, I fell and landed flat on my back and damaged my shoulder blade. It was bad for weeks. Um, the 2010-2011 period was absolutely horrific. And we, we had uh, months, essentially six weeks, where it was almost impossible to walk the streets because the, the, the place was like um, glass. This hopefully will not be so bad. One of the few things we have to thank global warming for. But nevertheless, we've got uh, snow in Glasgow and the usual stories about ungritted roads and uh, and motorists complaining. Now, this is all, in a sense, pretty straightforward. The amount of money it costs to do the, uh, the gritting is the amortised cost of the equipment and the redeployment of staff. So most of the staff who drive the bin lorries can drive the gritters. They've got the same licence. So what you have to look at is the amortised, in other words, the overtime cost of the of the gritting equipment. And uh, the reason why it's so expensive, as it were, per gritter day, is because we have so few days when gritters are needed. If you have a, a vehicle that costs £150,000 or whatever, then if you're costing it out at 6%, which is a bit high actually because the, the council can borrow money cheaper than that. But if you cost out 6%, it's costing you nine grand a year. And uh, if you only get uh, nine days out of it, each of those days is costing you a thousand pounds, obviously, even if you can redeploy uh, drivers to, to the vehicles on the, on the days that you need it. So at one level, the, the reason why we've got such a terrible situation is because it just isn't worth having a better one. If we were in a country where there was more actual bad days, it'd be worthwhile spending more money in dealing with the bad days that we have. But we don't really have enough bad days to make big investment worthwhile. However, there's another issue that this raises, and that's uh, a more long-standing cross-issue issue, if you like, that's bad English, but the, 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 the problem we've got with gritting is the problem we've got with social work, it's the problem we've got with education. It's the problem we've got with fly tipping. It's the problem we have with everything. And it's the problem we're going to have in four uh, months' time when people turn out in battalion strength and vote for whichever candidate the SNP have chosen to put forward 
for their uh, constituency or their ward in the council elections. Because the councillors are responsible for gritting plans. The councillors are responsible for spending the money that they raise in the council tax and four times that from central government. The reason why the councillors don't really care about gritting roads or fixing schools through school improvement plans or challenging social workers who seem to generate codependency in the people they work with. Um, the reason why the councillors don't challenge that is because they don't have to. And the reason why they don't have to is because people vote on party political lines in council elections. Now, in some parts of the United States, local authority elections are completely depoliticised. The public don't know whether someone's notionally a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't appear on the ballot. And that's because it's got nothing to do with the things that the council, or in this case the county or the municipality, have to deal with. And uh, even where there is a party political label, it's often meaningless, because the number of people voting in the primary election to decide who gets the label is very small. And they don't, people don't vote on the basis of the label anyway. They vote because they know the local lawyer who's running as the Republican, and they think he's okay. So we in Scotland have got a major problem when it comes to party political voting, uh, particularly in the local authority elections where it's least apt, arguably in, also in Hollywood, because what we've got in Hollywood in, in, uh, in the, the Scottish Parliament are uh, people who are meant to deal with issues which are fundamentally non-ideological. So education, health and law and order are really kind of technical, non-party political issues. Welfare and corporate tax and international affairs, these are really ideological issues. You know, that there are big questions when it comes to relationships with the European Union or the use of military force or the, the fundamental welfare provision and pension provision that society thinks is appropriate. These are really major ideological issues. Conservatives, for example, think that people adapt their behaviour to suit the, the system you present them with and therefore you will get bad behaviour if you make the welfare state generous. Um, socialists believe that um, frightened people won't take risks um, and therefore, and, and everyone wants to work, work is life's prime want, and therefore a, a universal basic income might even be possible. So these are fundamental differences in ideology. But when it comes to things like health and education and law and order, really it's about efficiency. Nobody thinks that the health service should be anything other than free at the point of use and highly efficient. So the question is, how do you managerially and administratively get a health service that works like that? Nobody thinks the job of the police, except partly in, in Bristol, but nobody thinks the job of the police is anything other than to protect life and property and keep the peace and enforce the law. So the question is, does forcing the cops to not bail people who make racial comments, racist, racist comments, when they're being arrested for a breach of the peace, is that a good policy? Is it the case that we should uh, allow um, police fines to be used and, and warnings to be used when people are carrying Class A drugs supposedly for their own use? These are just essentially technical, bureaucratic, administrative questions. The, the question as to whether um, people who are fined for carrying small amounts of Class A drugs will often be drug dealers who are carrying exactly the amount they need for one sale and therefore they're not actually users, they're dealers. And... Uh, and what you'll do if you have fines for that kind of uh, possession is you'll encourage drug dealing. But that's a factual, a factual question. How many of the people have stopped by the police and searched and found if Class A drugs are actually uh, drug dealers? That's a, that's a factual question. 
and uh, presumably it can be resolved if you if you look at it. So Hollywood is probably an inapt place for party political ideology much of the time. The local authorities are completely and utterly inapt places for party politics. The, the things they deal with have got nothing to do with party politics. There isn't a Labour way, a Tory way or an SNP way to fix the roads. There's just an efficient way and an inefficient way. It's just a question of getting it done or not getting it done. But in four months' time, people will turn out and vote for their party in the local authority elections. And then, well, then they'll wonder why the roads aren't gritted. They'll wonder why the bins aren't emptied. They'll wonder why the potholes aren't fixed. And they'll wonder why their uh, park isn't maintained in the way they, they would wish. And, of course, the reason why none of those things will take place is because when the Scottish Government gives the councils uh, a funding uh, package, which is, I think, at the last estimate, was a 900 million light. When the Scottish Government gives the, the councils utterly inadequate um, funds and then tells them to raise council tax in order to make up the difference, which would involve massive hikes for anybody who wasn't receiving council tax benefit. When the, when the uh, Hollywood Parliament does that, when the SNP government does that, nobody really cares over much. And the councillors who are going to be elected, re-elected in, in May, are not responsive to the local authority, uh, the local people's demands, because the local authority is nothing more than a proxy for people's feelings about Boris Johnson and Brexit and other things that have been nothing to do with it. When the Tory party was unpopular in the 1990s and John Major's government was falling apart, there were massive swings against uh, the Tory party in council elections, despite the fact that the councillors had absolutely nothing to do with the National Party. So we, everybody gets the government they deserve. That's an old saw, de maestro, the French theorist. Every nation gets the government it deserves. And uh, we, I think, uh, need to take a long, hard look at ourselves before we take a look at our councillors and MSPs, because their behaviour um, is designed to game our behaviour. Their behaviour is a response to what we offer them by way of incentives. And uh, if we tell them that we'll vote for them reliably no matter what they do, well, they're going to look to their next move. The councillors who want to be MSPs are going to make damn certain they don't upset the, uh, the Hollywood administration because they know that uh, that will damage their prospects when it comes to being selected for a safe seat for Hollywood. So the, the council elections um, is just a, a proxy for Boris Johnson's shenanigans and uh, the, the, the European Union debate and NDREF2 and a load of other things, none of which have got anything at all to do with gritting the roads. But that's why the roads aren't gritted. Talk to anybody um, from England about Glasgow and there's a fair chance they're going to bring up the deep-fried Mars bar. I've only ever met one person who's actually eaten a deep-fried Mars bar. Uh, it was a student um, and he said, quite tasty. <laughs> he, described, he described the crispy batter and then the warm, the warm, soft Mars bar underneath, which had been flash-fried in the 400-degree uh, oil. Um, but uh, so while I'm sure such things exist, I don't think they're very common. I don't think too often somebody goes into a fish and chip shop and asks for a deep fried Mars bar. It might be on the menu, but I'd be surprised if they sold many of them. There's a story today about 
Scotland's um, health problems, particularly Glasgow. Glasgow, the sick man of Europe. Glasgow is uh, is worse than uh, even similar post-industrial cities like Liverpool when it comes to life expectancy, the so-called Glasgow effect. A couple of years ago, I had to sit for uh, 40 minutes and, uh, and hectored, hectored is a strong word, but it's an accurate one, uh, be hectored by the former chief medical officer. Uh, I think his name is Harry Burns. But uh, Harry, who's a very good speaker, very impressive speaker, Harry was telling us about the, uh, the situation in Glasgow and the terrible toll that poverty plays in people's lives. Now, there's an old saying which is that uh, a, a, a lie is halfway around the world um, before the truth has got its boots on. The, the things that are said about health are not lies. There is a massive correlation between um, poverty and, uh, and ill health. The trouble is that if the public want to reach a mature view as to what's actually causing what, what the real cause and effect relationships are in the world, the people who are telling them about the situation need to be conscious of how things will be interpreted. This is interesting because it's exactly why the government doesn't want to tell the truth about COVID, but they are prepared to allow similar um, mistakes to happen when it comes to other things. So if they, if they told you the truth about COVID, which is that uh, it's very unlikely to affect kids to any great degree, and the, uh, the total number of people without comorbidities under the age of 50 who've died of COVID is less than the number of drowning deaths. So it's a, it's a disease that's very unlikely to kill the young. It kills older people and those with comorbidities. I think the figure is that uh, you can be, if, you're, if you're 75 and you've got, I think, three or four comorbidities, you've still got a 75% chance of surviving COVID. So it's a disease that kills the very old and the very ill. And for young people, it's actually, I think, statistically less dangerous than flu. The flu, some years, can, uh, can kill uh, young people. My friend at university, one of the pals, one of the guys in university, his sister, died of flu. She was 29, 30, uh, got flu and died. So the, uh, the, the COVID threat um, is very, very modest for most um, folk. But they don't want you to know that because they think that knowing the truth will change your behaviour in harmful ways. So that we've got the, the sort of platonic noble lie where it's important that I work out exactly what you'll do with the information I give you, and therefore I'll shape that information based on my predictions about what you'll do with it. So I can't just straightforwardly tell you the truth because it's dangerous. You'll, you'll go on to do things which you shouldn't do. Well, that's okay as long as you're certain about the links because what you're doing is you're taking a backward step from liberalism. You're essentially saying that the free society was a mistake and that uh, on some things at least it's important to maintain fictions. So take for example the famous figure that life expectancy in the Carlton, which is a deprived area in Glasgow, was 54 for men. Okay. Now that has been repeated uh, ad nauseum for 15-20 years. You can still find it if you google it quite easily. 50 homeless guys who were close to death in the middle of the Carlton and they went there to die. 
So the reason why life expectancy, and it, it doesn't take very many such folk to uh, really affect the figures. So a small centre full of seriously ill guys, guys that maybe been taking drugs and had uh, massive liver problems and, uh, and and similar things that really in, impact on your life expectancy. You've been an alcoholic and you've got cirrhosis and your liver's been permanently damaged beyond the point where it'll repair, um, then you're looking at dying young. And uh, that through the figures. If you exclude that group, then all of a sudden you've got uh, an average that looks nothing like as bad. About less than 10 years ago, there was the Eurostat um, survey of all the available data, a meta-analysis as they call it. And they looked at life expectancy figures and drilled down into them, trying to find people in deprived areas who had exactly the same lifestyle as people in more uh, affluent areas in order to work out what the impact was of the area itself, the so-called neighbourhood effect. And what they discovered was, when you drilled down into the data and found people in, I think it was Fergusley Park was one of the places they looked at, when you found people who uh, walked everywhere, didn't drink, didn't smoke and ate loads of vegetables, and you compared them to people with the same characteristics in the affluent Bridge of Weir, um, a short distance away, the life expectancy was exactly the same. I think it was 84 from memory for males, which is a good age. So there wasn't actually a neighbourhood effect. It wasn't that the neighbourhood was causing ill health. It was that people who lived in that neighbourhood were more likely to engage in the behaviours that damaged their health. But you couldn't actually find a neighbourhood effect in and of itself. Whether you think that's significant or not, it's at least interesting. Similarly, the so-called austerity deaths, which have been spoken about for the best part of 10 years and are still being spoken about. One of the things we did in the UK um, before the 2010 uh, Tory government was we had a massive push to give people statins. So if you were in a late middle-aged uh, early uh, retired cohort, you were offered statins, which were thought to significantly reduce your risk of a negative cardiovascular event, the kind of thing that typically kills you um, young. So with a massive push on statins, now once you've got a background level of statin prescription year on year on year, once you're actually given these things out to certain age groups as a matter of routine and enough time passes, then that becomes back of the, the part of the background fact, if you like. So people in their 50s start taking statins and they have been taking them for decades, maybe at some point that'll happen. But when you first introduce statins, you're giving them to a group of people, some of whom are going to die young of cardiovascular events and the statins are going to prevent that. However, even if you're taking statins, you are going to die of something at some point. So if you're in the group of people who first received statins and would have died had you not received statins. You'll now live a bit longer and die of something else. And the place you'll, the time you'll die um, is around about 2013, 2014, which is when the big surge in deaths took place. And that movement in 2013, 14 looks dramatic precisely because the figures for the UK before that period were extraordinarily good. And they were extraordinarily good because of the, the distribution of statins. So if you look across Europe, the drop in the rate of increase of life expectancy took place across all countries, not just in ones 
that can be stigmatised as being victims of Tory austerity. And the drop in the UK was particularly sharp against dramatically better earlier results. So it was precisely because the UK had really violently, rapidly increasing life expectancy just before 2010 because of this massive rollout of statins, probably. Um, because of that, the fall in 2013-14, when the group of people who'd been kept alive by the statins had to die at some point and died then, when that happened in this kind of one-off cohort effect, it made the figures look very bad. Now, all of the things that I've just said are kind of a wee bit complicated, a wee bit kind of boring, you know? Talking about the impact that uh, a group of uh, seriously old guys in the middle of a council ward in the Carlton, talking about the impact that has on average figures is just a wee bit kind of tedious, and who cares, really? People are still dying young. If I was if I was standing in front of, a, of, of an audience, doubtless somebody would say, but these are still people. These are people whose lives matter. You know, because they wouldn't really understand what was being said about averages. They wouldn't really understand that the average was meaningless. That what you'd have to look at is the modal or the median um, life expectancy. Instead of looking at an arithmetical average and adding in the fact that these guys are dying in their 30s and 40s from alcoholism, what you'd have to do is look at all of the deaths laid out in a line and then pick the, the middle or the most common uh, age of death, and that would give you a much better average. Folk are really not interested in that kind of stuff. They don't want to hear about a meta-analysis and finding people who live healthily in deprived areas. It's just all a little bit tedious. And when it comes to something like, for example, trying to explain the cohort effect for the first generation that gets statins, you really have jumped the shark when it comes to boring people and, and get into more detail than they can cope with or feel that they should engage with. The trouble is that that's actually how the world works. And uh, to return to my, my hobby horse, if you really are prepared to reward and elect politicians who patronise you, who work out that you're not prepared to listen to somebody talking about a meta-analysis or a cohort effect, if you elect politicians who work out that that's pretty much um, how you feel about this kind of talk, and they decide that they would rather patronise you and mislead you and misgovern you and harm you than not get elected. Well, in that case, you really shouldn't complain about your life being less good than it could have been because you chose it. Peace.